in the same way that there are beauty standards that we have to work to not sort of accidentally compare ourselves to. There are voice standards and they are so entrenched and we don't have the language to talk about them. Hi, and welcome to the New Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. I'm Lindsay Kaplan, and we're the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. Each episode, we take on a thought-provoking leadership question. And today, we're tackling a unique one. What does a powerful leader sound like? I'm just going to say it probably sounds a lot like me, right, Lindsay? Uh, I'm just going to leave that there. So executives have long been coached from everything on how to dress, how to stand, and yes, how to speak in order to be perceived as confident and authoritative. And I know we've all heard some of these tips before. Like stop the vocal fry. And don't end your statements with a question. Don't say hedge phrases or filler words like... I think. And of course, most notably, lower your voice register. <laughs> right. So perhaps we all haven't changed our voices as intentionally or dramatically as Elizabeth Holmes or Lindsay, but whether consciously or not, we all have changed our natural voice to fit the room. And the truth is the advice we've heard is to make us all sound more like a man. Study after study shows that we associate low, low male voices with competence and authority. And intentionally or not, this has resulted in a widespread delusion that women need to change their voice in order to be taken seriously. But change is coming. Many vocal coaches say it's long past time to throw out the old rules of public speaking, which are all meant to imitate a straight, white, rich male voice and instead embrace the authenticity in our natural voices to command influence. Yes, coaches like our guest today, Samara Bay. Samara is a dialect and voice coach who works with Hollywood actors, politicians, and business people. She is the author and podcast host of Permission to Speak. We talk with Samara on how women, people of color, queer, and non-cis people can stop conforming and begin to find their own sound of power. Well, welcome, Samara. We are so excited to have you on today. You are a dialect and voice coach who is joining us to talk about how business leaders can better show up and have executive presence through their voice. So we're super excited to have you here today, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to have this conversation. We're thrilled, but we're nervous. We're going to get judged. <laughs> The producers <laughs> warned me, Lindsay, don't you dare change your voice. Just be you. That's right. I know I'm being judged and I'm here for it. There you go. <laughs> so for your background, you actually started your work with celebrities. So how did you decide to make the transition into working with executives and business people rather than the celebrity world? Yeah, it was a strange transition I didn't expect and then seemed totally obvious. So here's the thing. I have a acting background, Shakespeare, theater, all the things. And that translated in adulthood into a dialect coaching job. There's not a lot of dialect coaches. It's already a strange niche position. But you know, when you think about actors with accent work, whether English is their second language and they just need to be clear or they need to pick up a new accent for a role. Somebody has to be there to help them with the minutia of the sounds, but then also with something else. Also with what happens when we start to adjust our voice, 
what happens to our nervous system, what happens to our sense of self. We're talking about actors, but still they need to show up authentically on camera like a fully formed human. And as soon as we do something a little unusual with our voice, it triggers all kinds of stuff. So dialect coaching was partly the research on the sounds, but it was also largely this other part, this much more nebulous, how do I help them remain a living, breathing human through doing something new with their voices. And that ended up translating shockingly easily into non-dialect work that was also about tiny adjustments with our voice or tiny adjustments with, for example, speaking uh, to a larger group than ever before and what happens to our nervous system and what happens to our sense of self. It's all actually much more connected than I thought. And the real answer to your question is that around 2018, during quote unquote Trump's America, I was really looking for ways to be a better activist, not just showing up at protests, but really using my skills. And the perfect opportunity landed in my lap when moveon.org was looking for people to coach the 2018 midterms. They had a lot of incredible candidates, mostly women, mostly running for the first time. We were nervous as hell. And I jumped in. I didn't really know if this was something that I could translate from the performance world. And I had such a good time and it was so meaningful. And I learned so much. And some one of the things I learned was honestly that my instincts were quite good about what was actually making people, what was making these women hide vocally and otherwise in these high stakes moments of truth and then helping them unhide, helping them show up, as you said. I love that. And it turned into a job. It turned into like, oh, I need to keep doing this. And it feels like there's been a lot of attention on women's voices, particularly as there was all of that buzz around Elizabeth Holmes and how she changed her register. Yep. <laughs> Studies found that lower pitches are associated with competence. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how traditional views on power and authority, why they're associated with lower voices and where, where that comes from, that we're interpreting that low voice as more competent. Well, I'll give you a really complicated answer. Men. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, here's the thing. For thousands of years, really, let's, let's date this back to Greece and what oratory, good oratory meant. And in all cases, with very few, I should say, very few and instructive exceptions, in basically all cases, the public was for men. And when we spoke in public, this concept public speaking that I think is a little cringy, like what does it really mean? And I think it's somewhat commandeered by these executive presence coachings that just teach everybody to sort of sound like men and don't really think through what they're um, actually enforcing with that. For 2,000 years, the public has belonged to men. Less than 100 years ago, it was still very, very strange to step outside the home alone as a woman, let alone speak on her convictions. And especially if you were poor, especially if you were a woman of color, much less than 100 years ago. And in certain cases, it feels like yesterday and maybe was that, you know, you're not taken seriously when you open your mouth to speak in literal public. So some of it is a huge amount of what ends up being the work that I do is the permission side of things. So my book, my podcast is called Permission to Speak. And it ended up being like such a cool title, actually, because the speaking part, I can always talk to. I'm thrilled to get into talking about tone and pitch and volume and tempo, the real basics of how the instrument that is our voice comes out of our mouth. But none of it actually matters without the permission part. And the permission part is my sort of catch-all for this idea of like, what's actually going on with our assumptions around voices, around power, 
around what leadership sounds like. And even if we are deeply progressive and evolved, these assumptions should probably be looked at more deeply because almost all of us, maybe all of us, are walking around with voice biases, as I call them, that go on the long list of other biases that we are learning how to check, except that that one doesn't get mentioned. So we don't know. So what are those most common biases that you see for women leaders, for people of color? What do we so typically see or feel as it relates to voice bias? Well, I'll answer this like this. There's a standard for voice. There's a standard for what power sounds like. Weird phrase. But there's a standard for that that actually all of us are living it. I mean, we're breathing it like, what's the metaphor about when fish are swimming in water, they don't know they're in water. So in the same way that there are beauty standards, but we know about that, all of us are very sophisticated at this point. We might fall for it. We might still be debating injections as we see those lines, but we know it's an industry that is profiting on our not enoughness. We know these things about the beauty industry in the same way that there are beauty standards that we have to work to not sort of accidentally compare ourselves to. There are voice standards and they are so entrenched and we don't have the language to talk about them. These things that get told to women often in a seemingly friendly context by a seemingly well-intentioned boss or mentor. Sometimes it's not so well-intentioned. Sometimes it's, it's quite harsh, but often people think that they're helping. Your voice is too high. No one's going to take you seriously. And all of those, we have options. So as a coach, I will say one of the options is to heed that advice and actually work on changing that habit. I had a boss tell me eight, 10 years ago, he pulled me aside and he said, you don't say words correctly. Like you say mountain, you say button and people can't take you seriously. That's a New Jersey accent. (laughs) Well, I swallow my T's and it stuck with me. And I, to this day, whenever I hit one of those words, I kind of trip over it because I haven't really hit the place where now I'm comfortable with it and it just sticks in my brain like this is something I don't do well, but it's authentic to me. And so if we're intentionally changing our voice, whether that's from explicit or implicit messaging, women may be altering their voice without even realizing it. So how do we as women find our natural sound? There's a huge amount in the answer to that question, but I want to start with actually what you just said. All of us, I'll boldly say all of us because I have gotten so many comments from people about this. All of us have these little moments, like you described, that have an outsized impact on our relationship to our own voice. Mm. And I call it our voice story, which is really just meant to try to capture each one of us. If we have a regional accent or a you know language accent or our parents were immigrants, there are sort of obvious things we can point to. But then we left home. Mm -hmm. Then we maybe went to college and we learned there these subtle things in addition to what we actually, you know, quote unquote, learned at college. We also learned what smart sounds like, what being taken seriously in this particular space sounds like, maybe what likable sounds like, what charming sounds like, what works to get the attention of the person you want to get attention from. And linguists will say, we pick this stuff up all the time. Every habit we have serves us or served past tense, us, in some way. Wow. That's thrilling. It means every like, every upspeak, you picked up for a reason. And then some of it we've outgrown. (laughs) But we are in the moment that we are in this exact moment. We are the result of every one of those minor adjustments. 
So, you know, your question about how do we change how we sound or how do we reconcile ourselves with the messaging that is saying that we should change how we sound is I like to say that we're here to use our voice to get what we want. Yeah, it's really about finding that authentic voice. And so if we actually get down to authenticity, what we're talking about or hearing more of, what is the new voice? How do you define that and think about it? Here's what I'd love everybody listening to do. Think about who you really love listening to, a speech that really stuck out to you. Those moments are so instructive because they don't sound like the old sound of power. They didn't keep their voice low pitch-wise or volume-wise. There are these sort of rules if anybody here has taken an executive presence class or workshop on your voice in a corporate context. You'll often hear things like women should keep their voice lower pitch-wise, but actually also volume-wise. We don't want anybody getting banshee-like. And, you know, rein in your emotions. Nobody, Nobody can handle emotions in the workplace, especially if those emotions are, you know, anger. But also, by the way, enthusiasm codes for naivete. So, please don't actually care out loud. That would be very inconvenient for everybody involved. Don't use um, swooping pitch variation up and down. Certainly don't have it go up at the end of your sentence because then your sentence is a question and no one knows whether or not to take it seriously. Vocal fry, saying like, saying just, saying sorry, these hedging terms that soften what we're saying. Notice yourself in your favorite moments with your favorite people. What is she like? How much is she completely not appropriate at work? and how much is old stories. But in those high stakes moments when you really, not just on a daily basis for mundane stuff, you don't have to hold yourself accountable to this stuff. But in those high stakes moments when you're really pitching something close to your heart, if we can show up like a version of ourselves that we love, that we recognize, not only will we have more fun, but it will literally go better. No accounting for taste. There are certain contexts where that's not the case, where people have it out for you. Fine. But obviously, I'm hoping that we will find ourselves in more and more spaces where when we bring that version of ourselves, it actually will affect the room. And it would certainly affect the version of ourselves that are in the audience listening. Because when we're talking about Oprah and we're talking about AOC and fill in the blank, personal heroes of yours, we lean in. So I would love that the people around you lean in, but you've got to show up as that version of yourself you really like. So what can someone do if they've been inauthentic? They've gone their entire career slowing down 70%, dropping their voice, behaving like a robot, essentially. What can those people do to get back into what you say is that passionate, real, authentic place? I think it's the two things that I just described in terms of kind of doing your homework, figuring out, noticing yourself in those moments that really do feel authentic and kind of getting a little curious and mischievous about, is this version of me somebody that I can bring with me into these high stakes business moments? What part of that could I bring in? And the second is listening to the voices of people we really admire. So the third thing that I was going to say is there is a little bit of like, okay, say you have something coming up at 10 o'clock. It's now 930. You have half an hour alone in your office or in a space that you can find on your own. And What can you do for half an hour to get yourself into a position to really try out, to sort of take this gamble to bring more of yourself into the space? So there are physical things you can do from like yoga, running, whatever is already your sort of natural thing. But use this as an opportunity to get your breath going and to trust your instincts, maybe dance around to somebody that makes you feel joyful, maybe even a little sexy, get your hips going, parts of your body that sometimes we forget about when we're in a business context. I just want to say like, if somebody does go back and change their voice, are they going to get called out? 
if you've been behaving like a robot the last few years and you start to bring your authentic voice, will people notice it? Are you going to get called out for that? What are any of the drawbacks? I think it will be subtle enough that no one will think, I don't recognize you. You were doing weird new things. They will think, whoa, you've never quite affected me the way you just did or something like that. And here's my other piece of practical coaching advice. If you do feel like you're going to do a real departure from how you've shown up, call it out. Depending on the space, of course, context is everything. You will know your space better than I will. But you can always say something like, I'm trying out a slightly new style. I'd love your feedback afterwards. Or I've been really doing a deep dive into what leadership not only means, but what it sounds like. Let's see if it's had an impact on how I approach this this coming talk. Yeah. I just think people are going to be like, whoa, what happened with her? She sounds happy finally. That's great. <laughs> Carolyn, what's going on in your personal life? Okay, great, 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 great. <laughs> people won't remember what you said. They won't remember what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. I would love to sort of caveat add to that and They won't necessarily think about how you used to sound compared to how you sound now. They'll just be enjoying how you make them feel. Yeah. I mean, I'm learning a ton through this conversation because literally just last week, I was talking to somebody on the team who is struggling with public speaking. I was like, just slow down. I was like, oh man, I use such the Googleable advice on. (laughs) (laughs) Have them talk to me because my advice is just take beta blockers. Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. They work great. (laughs) They're probably not good for my heart, but they work great. Look, how we handle our nervous system is definitely part of the puzzle. Mm. Absolutely. And pace, since you bring it up, my favorite take on this is that we should be speaking at the pace of the thought, Mm. which means it should be very inconsistent. When we make all of our things that we are saying sound measured, we suddenly sound like we are not there. Mm. But if we say something that has an inherent like speed to it because we're like getting excited and something builds and something builds and something builds, great. And then when we say, and that is what matters. Yeah. You can see it even the way that you speak. You very much slow down in these moments and it just draws me in in those moments because it's not... I feel an obligation to model this, I must say. I do. It's wonderful. She's speeding up. She's slowing down. She's <laughs> reeling you in, Caroline. I love it. I love it. You're falling for it. It sounds so manipulative all of a sudden. I'm in. I'm all in. It's authenticity. <laughs> it's authentic. It's authentic manipulation. <laughs> Are there other important things to remember when you're trying to speak either with authority or authenticity? Something that comes up in a lot of data around leadership, around good leadership, is these two concepts that play against each other and with each other, strength and warmth. And on the warmth dial, it can go all the way up to radiating warmth and love. And it can go all the way down to a certain coldness that of course is not telling of somebody's heart and soul, but is telling of how they're coming across and how willing they are or aren't to show that they care, to be nurturing, to fill in the blank language. The strength dial goes all the way from extremely powerful, strong, I take myself seriously, to I don't take myself seriously, I'm not that competent. The data says for women, we must balance. So if we tend to come across as quite strong, but not that warm, There's a whole lot of language in the English language that 
is used to try to describe that type of a woman. <laughs> None of it nice. None of it nice. None of it nice. And then on the other end, also somewhat unhelpful if you are, for example, extremely warm, but come across as incompetent or like you don't know what you're doing, people will often call you adorable. Oh, you're so sweet. Oh, she's so nice. Nice, nice sense of humor, right? So neither of those are particularly helpful. And then the question is, okay, well, how do you change those dials? And do you even want to? And what do you do with the resentment that comes up that you feel that you have to? So this is actually some of the work I really do with people. And some of it ends up being, some of the things that unlock the answer ends up being, well, what would it mean to bring a bit more warmth into this meeting where I know my stuff? Is it that old, uncomfortable advice? Just smile more. I think that's a complete misunderstanding, perversion of upping the warmth dial. And if any coach out there uses that, I encourage you to stop. It's wrong. I mean, not only does it absolutely inspire resentment in any modern female leader or non-leader, but also it's really not what warmth is about. It's not about how we look on the outside. It's choosing to bring more care into the space. I care about you. And that radiance, that warmth does start to come up when we decide, you know what, we don't often talk about love in a work context. We don't have to talk about it actually, but can we bring a little bit of like, I am taking deep care of you while I'm telling you this stuff that I know very well. And that is a great way to balance the scale. And similarly, you know, on the strength side, if we are constantly being told that we're too soft-spoken or that we're not as confident as we should be, there's a lot probably going on there. But one of the things may be, what is your archetype for strength? Is it something that you have decided you would never want to be? Because maybe you think of strength as interconnected with meanness with violence, with a masculine trope that we don't want men to sound like either anymore. And getting a little bit curious there tends to kind of open open up your strength side. What about people of color, other minority groups like the queer community? Do they feel like they're supposed to fall into certain speech patterns at work to be more professional? You hear a lot about code switching and how do we make sure we're building an environment where people can be authentic and bring themselves to the table but still uphold what you speak to is like these best practices and speaking like a leader. Yeah. I mean, I think the best answer, quite honestly, is that part of DEI training should be about voice bias. I don't think a single one is. And I'm in the middle of talking to organizations about that because I just think we obviously need to change the culture yes. rather than asking members of our community who are already um, dealing with burdens of being onlys or being you know, underrepresented to also make shifts. And if we're hiring people because of their ideas, wouldn't it be great to hear them unencumbered? Mm. So that is an answer. And I hope it's the prime answer. And then obviously on a case-by-case basis for the individuals for whom the identities that you just described fit, they're already dealing with this. They're already trying to figure out, well, what is safe? How much of me can I bring into these spaces? And the answer in a lot of cases is it doesn't work. I try to not code switch and I don't get heard. I get talked over. I get something. I get dismissed, literally or emotionally. So it's interesting because when I started getting into this work and talking about the idea of voice biases, you know, the people who don't need to be told that there are voice biases, (laughs) immigrants, people of color, queer folks, if they present in a way that is very noticeably queer, quote unquote, noticeably. And they know because it's their daily life. And for the rest of us, myself included, who really had the privilege of coming somewhat late to the, ah, learning funny voices isn't just funny, 
game, right? We get to really think seriously about, and especially for women who actually have also been marginalized in this way, we get to think seriously about how these voice biases are being perpetuated on us and by us. One of the other things that I talk about in my book is listening with a more generous ear. And that is a way of talking about checking our voice biases. And you know what? It's not just how we listen to each other, although that matters, but also how we listen to ourselves so that we don't dismiss ourselves. Well, speaking of listening to ourselves. <laughs> Uh-oh. I know where we're going. That was a segue. <sighs> oh, jeez. If there was ever a segue, I think it's time. I think we are open. I'm going to try to be myself, but I think we need a critique. I think we need to hear it. So, Lindsay, what happened when you said, I'm going to try to be myself, is you took a real breath. I did. (laughs) And it changed how your voice came out. In a great way. I mean, look, I'm truly not here. I was told in advance. I'm maybe put on the spot to give Lindsay and Carolyn some feedback. So just to be clear, you know, when I coach people, I am not here to be like, you're doing this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. Here's your checklist. Go home and fix it. More than anything, I'm here to say, how do you feel in your voice? How is it working for you right now? The permission side of it does not come from someone on the outside giving you permission, although sometimes that helps. But from you on the inside giving yourself permission. So Often, we are not breathing enough. This is just habitual, and it's at the level of mass culture. I mean, somebody did a research on what she called email apnea, sleep apnea, but when you read an email, you hold your breath, and then you forget to let it go. Oh, my gosh. That's so interesting. And that's when the stakes are so low. It's just an email. So think about when the stakes are so high, you're about to try to actually talk about your heart and soul or whatever, your pitch you're hoping they'll buy, your promotion you're hoping they'll say yes to. In the case of those women running for office, you're... Trust me, which is really what office running is all about. You can imagine that we hold our breath. Part of why I suggested yoga and running, when you get a little bit more out of breath, your body starts to kick in to solve that problem. And all of a sudden, oh, there's that breath from down low that's actually going to support me. How interesting. Now I can actually use pitch range. I just did that. How interesting. If I didn't have a lot of breath support for anybody who's ever been told that they use vocal fry, which Lindsay, you were doing just for a tiny bit before you took that breath. Nothing wrong with it. Not here to demonize vocal fry. I fry. I fry sometimes. <laughs> Got some fry. Right, right, right. Again, cultural linguists will say, picked it up for a reason, right? Um, but, you know, often, just to give an example of vocal fry, often vocal fry happens when we're not breathing, right? So then we're using our throat to just make the sound come out. And when we use vocal fry, we have no pitch. We literally can't. And you sound like a public radio host. I love it. No! <laughs> and most of us use vocal fry, not as I just did, which was sort of extreme, but at the end of a thought. So if we did have breath at the beginning and we're like, I care about this, I care about this, I care about this, but I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Mm. So energetically, and in that case, literally with the language I used, we're taking it back. We're putting it out, then we're taking it back. Another tool. But when we're on stage or metaphorically on stage, sharing this thing that's close to our heart, do we need to take it back at the end? Or can we get a little curious about what it would take to mean it, mean it, mean it all the way to the end and hand it over? Whoa, it's a completely different energy. All right. So I have vocal fry. (laughs) I need to breathe more. But what about Carolyn? Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Carolyn, talk to me a little bit more. Where were you born and raised? I grew up in a very small town outside of Ithaca, New York. I say Ithaca, New York because my town was so small. It doesn't even have a stoplight. I think they do now. But when I grew up, it didn't even have a single stoplight in the entire town. That's amazing, by the way. (laughs) Did you know you were going to get out? Yeah. All the stories that you hear are people that are like, I just knew I had to get out. I loved it. It was a great place to grow up and great community. So it wasn't like that eagerness. But 
yeah, I also knew I was probably going to get out of there at some point. I don't have a huge amount to say to you except also breath. I know it's going to sound so annoying. Like, I'm so good, Lindsay. She doesn't even have a critique. I told you, <laughs> Cece, you have a great voice. You've got a real voice for radio. <laughs> Love you. I'm going to push on it a little tiny bit though. Yes. If you give yourself more breath, and by that I mean actual breath support from lower. Mm. Most of us have all kinds of drama going on with our, besides everything I just said culturally with breath, there is also this sort of endless suck-in culture results on our body where if we actually create a balloon with our lower torso, we feel really vulnerable. So that's part of what I'm talking about. But if you habitually underuse that, your voice feels a little bit weaker than I think it actually has the capability of being, which slightly codes for nervous. Mm. So it has a little bit of like this kind of quality to it that's a little bit like instead of a more forcefulness that comes purely from breath, also from permission, but purely from breath if we're talking technically. Mm. So I would encourage you just to find out what your sort of range is of that strength, the energy mm. to practice that. And maybe it's even standing versus sitting. Mm. Often when we're sitting, especially if we're in any way kind of folded in upper body position. We're not really allowing our breath to fully use itself the right way. Watch out, Lindsay. Here I come. Full breath coming at you. I usually tell (laughs) Carolyn to smile more. I'm like, Carolyn, but now I'm going to say, stand up, Cece. Get on a running treadmill desk. Breathe from where it matters. Do your yoga positions. But you know, I will say this also, since the two of you are, I think everybody listening can agree, in a gorgeous power position, in charge of an incredible new company that is making waves, you are also in an interesting position to sort of model what leadership, the new sound, not just the new face, the new expression of leadership sounds like. And one of the things that you did from the moment that I sat down was signaled in every way that this conversation is casual, that it is sort of democratized, that we all get to chat, that it can be funny, that it can be silly, that we don't have to take ourselves more seriously than we are. We don't have to also sort of put on a fake seriousness because we don't trust that what we're talking about is serious enough on its own. You gave me all of that. So these tiny things I'm saying about your, of course, about your sounds, fine, You can go off and have an assignment. But truly, I really want to applaud you because I do think that you're actually representing the new sound of power. I'm taking a deep breath to say, Samara, thank you so much for that vote. (laughs) No, take it back. Take it back. You you didn't just take the breath. You also Elizabeth Holmes to me. (laughs) I take the breath and now all that will come out is this person. I'm going to Holmes you out. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. I loved hearing about the biases that we carry around the way that women in particular, diverse people, show up to the office, that code switching, how we can get more authentic. So love this conversation. I will surely be working on my breath work and telling Carolyn to stand up when she talks to me. (laughs) So thank you. I'm going to continue to fry my way out of here. (laughs) All of us can do that. Thanks so much. That was Samara Bay, dialect coach and author of Permission to Speak. And now I am just really conscious about how I sound right now. Ah, me too. Maybe I should just lean into my vocal fry. (laughs) So when I'm preparing for a big speech or presentation, I really liked how she said to remember a time when I felt powerful or confident. Although 
I'm not really one for breathing exercises. I will also commit to trying it next time. And Carolyn, I'm curious, is there anything you do to prep before a board meeting or a big keynote? I mean, I don't do anything too intentional. In fact, I think if I overthink it or plan into it too much, it feels really scripted and less authentic and real. I feel like a lot of my power comes from being able to read the room and react versus just be totally scripted. But I think we could all definitely start to intentionally think about our breathing a bunch more. For me, I loved how she told us to lean into our emotions, to allow us to feel what we're saying. The old conventions of power and therefore the sound of power advised us to repress emotion. God forbid you sound upset or angry in the workplace, but yet some of the most powerful and memorable speeches are from people who let their emotions just run. I love how our goal as a coach isn't to change how you speak to conform to those old sounds of power, i.e. the cis white man, but to help you find your natural voice, the one that you may have just been squashing this whole time. Right? It's the idea, like everything else, that we need to stop asking women, people of color, those with intersectional identities, to look and act and sound a certain way in order to be deemed competent or influential. But society needs to accept that power can look, act, and sound very differently. And I think that begins with us starting to accept and project our natural voice. That's all for this episode of The New Rules of Business by Chief. Don't miss out on all of our Chief content. You can get more podcast episodes by following this show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're more of a social media person, find us and join the conversation on LinkedIn. But if you're ready to up the ante, and if you're thinking about becoming a member of the Chief Network, head to our website, chief.com, where you can apply. As a member, you'll be connected with the most powerful network of executive women across the country. Thanks, Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Katrina Conanan-Rial, Blaine Edens at Chief, and to our production team, Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Gina Moravec, Hannah Pedersen, Madison Lesby, and Michael Aquino. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Carolyn Childers. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>